Do you sense there's a fatigue in the dugout, maybe a complacency as these losses pile up where uh, guys are just almost getting used to losing here? No. Why not? I, I, I know them too well, and, and I don't think there's any getting used to freaking losing. Hell no. Get the hell out of here with that. Flip, that was Aaron Boone speaking to the media following Sunday's loss to the Phillies. And Flip, uh, I don't think I've ever heard or seen Boone appear as frustrated in a post-game press conference as he was right there. Have you? Uh, no, not that I could recollect, but uh, I mean, can you blame him? No, I can't blame him. I mean, that's just, I mean, I, listen, I look. One of the byproducts of, of not winning is that everybody's under pressure and everybody starts to feel the pressure. Nobody wants to admit that they feel the pressure, but they're under pressure. And, you know, and the press has a job to do and they're going to ask some tough questions sometimes. And sometimes they're not always delicate in how they phrase them or how they ask them. And sometimes they just blurt things out. And I'm not saying that the question was the wrong question. I'm just saying that sometimes the manner in which things could be asked, it's, it's you know, you don't mind what's asked, you mind the way it's asked. And I just think uh, Aaron was sensitive. And, I, you know, he's under pressure. The team has not been performing well. And, you know, he's got to be the – he's the manager. So he bears a certain amount of accountability for the, the team's performance, obviously. And so, you know, he's feeling it. He's, he's here he's here every day. He's, it's all around him. He can't escape it. And, and you know, I think he's done a good job. I think he's tried really hard. I think he's got the support of the players. And I think that it's just, a, you know, will it come around? I don't know, but it won't be for lack of effort. I mean, because I know everybody's trying. They're doing their best. So when you're doing your best and you're trying as hard as they are to, you know, to sort of – it's look, they had to expect the question. That's hardly a, a question you're not going to expect when you're losing the way the Yankees have been playing. They haven't been playing well at all. And uh, they have to expect those questions. But – but you know what? It's 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 still tough to hear when you when you it's, you really don't want to hear it, even though you're expecting it. If that makes any sense. So yeah, he heard it and he reacted accordingly. He didn't really feel like uh, he wasn't in the mood. And he thought it was really kind of a ridiculous question. And and I I could understand his sensitivity to the question, although I I, I respect the right of the media to ask it. You know, one of the things you said, Flip, was the way the question was asked. Um, and I want to say up front. So it was Brian Hoke from MLB.com who asked the question. I think he does an amazing job. He's a great reporter. He I want is. to say that up front. I agree. He's a good reporter. Right? And he's been doing it for years, more than a decade, maybe 15 years. So he, right. he knows what he's doing. Um, I do think that perhaps the gruff way in which he asked the question probably set him off. Um, and it was very out of character for Boone. It was right? you know, The question, the, the gruff manner was out of character for Brian, and the response was out of character for Aaron. But that's what happens when, you know, the press is to, wants to demand answers. And I don't know right now that the Yankees have a whole lot of answers, you know, other than to, that there's a lot of games left. And, you know, we've talked about this. Remember, we talked about two years ago when it was the Nationals who got off to a horrendous start and wound up winning the World Series. I mean, it happens every few years. Somebody gets off to a great start and then falls apart or somebody gets off to a really poor start and then winds up going really deep into October. So, it's hard to predict how this is all going to go. That's why you play the season. You know, it's the crucible of baseball is the 162 games. It is a long season. And, you know, it's, 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 it's the breath of challenges and, 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 um, 
and uh, issues and concerns and there is no there is no there is no blueprint for this is how it's done you know how it's done is you play the 162 games and you one game leads into the next and if you don't do it one day you hope you could do it the next but the, the key to it really is to be stay healthy enough where you can go on a run where you could find yourself going on those runs where you wind up out of 15 games you know you're 12 and 3 or you're 11 and 4 or you play 20 games and you're I don't know 16 and 4 whatever you have to go on a run every team usually a good team usually goes on at least one and the Yankees had a little bit of a run when they got off to a slow start then they went on a nice little tear and that's kind of been it for them and then that's that and then everything sort of has gone either it's about 500 or below 500 so they haven't played particularly well since that one little run they went on they've got more runs in them hopefully but but the key to it is obviously they've got to find consistency they have to find consistency in their offense now their pitching is starting to struggle their, their bats are starting to hit a little bit more but now the pitching is starting to is starting to sort of come apart and so they haven't been able to get the pitching and the hitting on the same page and the game truthfully the the, the offensive malaise that they that they've struggled with uh the lack of offensive production is not is not is 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 not unique to them. It's it's endemic to the game right now. Nobody's really scoring a lot of runs. I think you're right. They have to go on a run, and we'll look ahead to the next few series in a little bit, and um, maybe play a little Nostradamus and see if we could predict uh, how well the Yankees will do and uh, over the next, I guess, maybe twenty or twenty five games. But I, before we do that, I want to put a bow on this this Boone comment. Um, I will say that I liked it. I liked his response a lot. It showed some relatability, some realism. Um, some passion, you know, it was last episode. I think we were talking about how Twitter was getting on Boone for not being passionate enough against the Red Sox. Um, that showed passion to me. Um, but it did. We, we talked, you and I flip, we talked Sunday night after the press conference and you said something that was very interesting to me and something I never thought about. Do these managers need 15 minutes before they go off the field, straight to the press room? Do yes. they need time to cool off? Why don't they get that? Press. I don't know. It's, Girardi was the same way. I mean, I knew Joe really well. I still know him well. Uh, and Joe would just just fall right into the, right into the cauldron. He'd leave the the field and he'd go right into the presser. And if they had lost, he was in no mood for it. And and you know, and the and the writers were a couple of them in particular were you know uh, sort of a, a enjoyed the uh, the difficult question. And you know, they would they would spare him no quarter, and they would ask him really hard questions. And sometimes he wasn't in the mood to answer them because he didn't like losing Joe. And so you'd have this 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 relationship between him and the media, which was very proved to be very strong and very difficult on more than a few occasions. And, and, and that's the one thing that, you know, you try to avoid if you can because everybody's just doing their job. The media has a job to do, obviously. And, and the manager has a job to do and the team has a job to do. So, and they're not always going to be in sync and, and the interpretations aren't exactly going to be the same as to who's doing the job the, the way, who's meeting expectations and who isn't, et cetera. So the best thing to do is, as opposed to going in there and be upset about a loss and then, you know, be getting a question you don't like and, 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 and it becomes a contentious situation it's just to take you know 10-15 minutes as we were talking about and just exhale a little bit you know I don't want to have a cup of coffee but just sit down you know drink yourself a little little Gatorade uh, you know uh, try to relax exhale a little bit uh, it's a long couple of hours and you've just been through a you know a real a real mental chess match and and uh, you know, as if there's any other kind of match, I guess some chess match would be metal. But you know, you're uh, you just been through a, a real uh, you know a battle of wits for uh, for a couple of hours, and you're drained. And that's not the best way to face questions sometimes. So take a couple of deep breaths, relax a little bit, and then go in there. I, I think it should be the job of every media director 
uh, just make sure that the manager, not that the manager's always going to listen to the media directors, but they should. The media director should say, listen, you're not in a, a good frame of mind right now. Take 10 minutes and just, I'll, I'll, we'll do something. We'll, we'll tell them you'll be back. You'll be out here in 10 minutes. They, they'll, they'll work on something else until you get out. You know, or we'll do some other interview before you, we get to you or whatever. There are ways in which they can manipulate a schedule, handle a schedule, so the manager has a little time to decompress. Well, as we record this, the Yankees sit eight and a half back of the first place raise. Uh, certainly not insurmountable. They've come back from worse. Uh, in fact, they've came back from, what was it, 14-game deficit in 1978 against the Red Sox? 14 and a half. 14 and a half games yes. in July. Yes. Coincidentally, our guest this week played a major role in that. Why don't you tell everyone who our guest is? Uh well, he's got his first name is his middle name is uh, <laughs> Effen. His last name is um, uh, oh, why why are we playing games here? Bucky Dent, Bucky Effen Dent is our special guest, and yes, he was uh, he hit the uh, one of the most famous home runs in, in MLB history uh, in the in playoff game between the Yankees and the Red Sox, and uh, gave the Yankees the uh, the American League pennant. Can you say that? Can I say that? What you just said? What did I say? His nickname? Can you say that? Bucky Effendent? Yeah. Why not? I'm just wondering. I don't know. Was, was that, I'm not swear. Is Effen a swear word? <laughs> You're the boss. Uh, Effen's not a swear. Effen is Effen. Right? Effen <laughs> could be like, uh, like Zephyrin. Like, you know, Z- <laughs> Zephyrin, Zephyrin, Effen. Like flipping. Maybe that's what it stands for. Well, flipping. Well, how do you interpret flipping? Well, there's a variety of ways. Like effing. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't. I, I know. I'm, I'm trying to clean it up. Anyway, in Boston, they're not very. They they don't care about uh, being hospitable when it comes no. to Bucky Dent. That was a home run that that stung them. Then and they're still not over it. All these years later, uh, they should be over it, but I guess they're not. And and that's good. Well, Boston may not be hospitable, but we will be. How about we uh, go to that interview? All right, let's go. Bucky Dent, here we go. Welcome back to Curtain Call. John Filippelli, Kevin Sullivan. Uh, at this time, we have a very special guest. Uh, you cannot go through Yankee lore and not talk about the most famous home run in Yankee history. A lot of home runs in Yankee history. I don't know that any were bigger than than the one that this uh, our, our special guest hit. Uh, the Yankees were fourteen and a half games out in uh, as uh, as of August nineteen seventy eight, and they re- made an incredible comeback. They really did, and they caught the Red Sox and actually passed the Red Sox and then fell back, and then the Red Sox passed them, and the Yankees won them in a tie at the last day of the season, so forced the playoff. And uh, this gentleman, well, I, why am I saying this gentleman? It's Bucky Dent. Hello, Bucky Dent. It's the most famous home run in Yankee history. And the Yankees go on to the World Series and wind up uh, uh, winning the World Series. But it, the, the real lore is in the is in the pursuit of the Red Sox and in that great playoff game, which was an incredible game and uh, an incredible moment. And uh, Bucky Dent uh, did many things in his dozen years in, in Major League Baseball. Also was a manager. So we're going to explore all that with him at this time. So, Bucky, how are you today? Thanks for being part of this. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm doing great, man. And uh, it's always great to talk to you about baseball. I'm going to start with, thank you. I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with a very obvious question, but is there a day that goes by when somebody doesn't talk to you about that home run? Oh, Lord, no. 
No, 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 no. I, I, you know, I, I just feel honored to be able to be a part of history. You know, I mean, as a kid growing up, you know, Mano was my home, my hero. Yankees were my team. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I tell everybody, I, I got a chance to do a lot of things in sports. I got a chance to fill a lot of dreams. You know, I got to play for a team I wanted to play for. I got to meet my hero. I got to play in big games, win world championships, and play in probably one of the greatest games in the history of, of baseball, Red Sox Yankee game in, in 1978. So uh, I feel blessed. I'm going to ask you a question. It's, it's, it, it just, it's, about, it's about the at-bat. Is the famous story about that wasn't your bat? No, right. it, was, it, was, it was Mickey's bat. Um, um, I had used his bat. I, was, I had struggled a little bit going into the uh, latter part of the year. And so we're standing around the batting cage and I go, hey, homie, let me use your bat. You know, let me let me use your bat in batting practice. So I started hitting with it and I hit a ball in the end of the bat and it got a little hairline crack. So um, during the game, I didn't wear my guard. I, I wore a a leg guard because I got a blood clot in spring training. I fouled the ball off my leg and I wore a guard that all that year. And I didn't wear it in that game. Cause I said, it's one game. I'm not going to wear it today. And I fouled the dog on ball off my leg and it swole up. And so when I went back to the on deck circle and Gene Monahan came back and was putting that cold stuff on Mickey waltz up and goes, Hey homie, you got the wrong bat. That one's cracked. And I went, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't, I don't think I heard what he said really. And so as I started to go back up, to the plate, the bat boy came up and said, Hey, Mickey said, take this bat. The other one's cracked. So I just grabbed it, went in, got in the box and the first pitch Torres threw. I, I hit the ball in the net, but it, it was Mickey's bat. How much did you guys really hate the Red Sox? I mean, the Yankee Red Sox rivalry is obviously we're talking about lore. I mean, it's, 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 it's not a better rivalry in baseball, but I mean, there's such characters, such incredible players on both sides. Um, that had to be an intense rivalry. Well, it was. And I got to experience it in 77 when I got traded over there. You know, I'd heard about the rivalry. I'd seen it, you know, the fights and things like that. You know, the 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 stories about, you know, Pinella hating Bill Lee, Munson hating Carlton Fisk and all that kind of stuff. And in 77, I got a chance to be a part of it. And my first time that I really felt it was when we went to Fenway, um, you know, to play our first game. And uh I, I got a little bit of Billy's wrath that night too. We were playing, I think it was a seventh inning and uh, uh, I think Freddie Lynn was on first and he went to steal second and Munson threw a strike to second. And when I went to tag him out, I dropped the ball and I kind of picked the ball up and I went crap. And I looked in the dugout, we were on national TV and I looked in the dugout and Billy's pulling the bats out of the rack, you know, throwing them down and I'm going, Oh crap. I ain't going in that end of the dugout. Well, we got out of the end and we were still ahead and we wound up winning the game, but I was like, Oh, geez, man. You know, he's pulling the bats out of the rack and, you know, he never said a word to me, but, you know, you could feel it. And, and when, you know, you went into Fenway park, you could feel the electricity, you know, the, the people, the, you know, the crowd saying stuff, you know, throwing things and um, you, you got to feel the intensity of it, you know, and hear the guys talk about it, you know, and, and see what that Yankee rivalry was all about. So I had a chance to experience that in 77. So I knew what they were talking about. And you know, there were also a lot of there were a lot of internal battles in the Yankees as well. I mean, that was a team that was combative and competitive, obviously competitive, extremely combative. But they were very combative among themselves. I oh mean, yeah, yeah, know, yeah. I mean, Reggie, were, uh, you know, Reggie and Thurman, and yeah, you know, that was well, the see, famous Bronx Zoo. Yeah, see, I, I missed spring training, so I missed all that. Where Jackson said, you know, I. 
I'm the one that's, you know, the straw that stirs the drink and all that stuff. So I got traded over there on actually a day before opening day. But then as the season went on, you know, and we're in that son of Sam and and you could see, you know, the the Billy, the Thurman, you know, I kind of stayed out of it because I was a, a new guy on the block and I was a quiet guy anyway. So I kind of stayed away from all that. But the one thing that I can honestly say is that um, it never affected that team on the field. Whatever happened off the field of, you know, this happening, George doing this, you know, Reggie doing that, it, when they went between the lines, they went to beat you. And they had a bunch of character guys that had a lot of character. And the bottom line was to win. And uh, it was a great feeling and a great experience, even though there's a lot of chaotic moments. It was still the focus was to win a world championship. Okay, I want to go back to the home run because um, there really is a lot to unpack there. First, I would say it resulted in you having the best nickname in all of sports. I, I don't know if you would agree. If you would agree, <laughs> we can't say it here, of course, but I think we all know what it is. Um, oh, go ahead. Second, say it. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, we have bosses. All right, you don't have a boss, but I have bosses. I mean, we, we can we can we can hint. We can, yeah, it starts with an F. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. It ends in ing. That's my trophy. That's my trophy from that game. Is I got a, a a great nickname, and I I love it. I wear it with like a badge of honor because it's a, uh, you know, like I said, sports is a game of moments, and and I and I had a big moment in a in a great situation, and uh, I got a new nickname. You should love it. It's awesome. On the flip side, though, you made Mike Torres famous for a reason he doesn't want to be famous for. Um, how did you really? You guys were teammates, I think, the year before. How did your relationship, how did that impact your relationship? Well, Mike and I are, are great friends now. Um, it was a little icy, you know, after, you know, seeing him a few times after that game. Um, but as time wore on, um, you know, we just became good friends and we, we were like Ralph Branca and, and Bobby Thompson. You know, we did a lot of things together and, you know, we, we did play together in 77 and, Mike was a great pitcher. I mean, and we, I, we wouldn't have won in 77. I mean, he pitched three great games down the stretch. And, uh, you know, he had good stuff. And actually, he was throwing a great game that day also um, and, until he made a mistake and, and I hit one in the net. But um, we, we've had a great relationship over the years. And, and uh, uh, he, he was, he was a, a super pitcher. You mentioned getting traded to the uh, Yankees in 77. This was after four really good years in Chicago, including an all-star year. Did that surprise you, the, tr the trade to New York? No, actually, you know, um, here, back in 73 when I was a rookie, um, at the end of the season, I'd never been to a pro basketball game. I'd never done a lot of things because I grew up in Florida and we didn't have all that down here. You know, we had the Dolphins were just coming in. But, you know, I went to a basketball game, a Bulls game, and we're sitting about four rows behind the bench of the Bulls. And these four guys walk in and they sit down in front of us. And the guy next to me elbows me. He goes, hey, you know who that guy is right there? And I go, no. He goes, that's George Steinbrenner. He owns the Yankees, but he's suspended right now. He says, you want to meet him? I go, sure. They tap him on the shoulder and he turns around. And I go, Mr. Steinbrenner, I'm shortstop for the Chicago White Sox. I'm Bucky Denton. He goes, I've been trying to get you, kid. I've been trying to get you. So, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll become a Yankee. We'll fast forward to. 77 in spring training, um, one of my closest friends worked for 60 Minutes, and they were doing a story for George in spring. 
And he said, and he calls me up and he goes, Bucky, uh, Bill Vack and George are meeting tonight. They're talking about trading for you. We're doing a story. And so stay home. So I stayed home a week, two weeks, three. I said, I'm not staying home anymore. So the last day of spring training, we're getting ready to go to Toronto. It's their first season. And the White Sox, we're going to open in Toronto. So I was getting some stuff to put in the car to go get on the plane. And the phone rings. And I pick up the phone and I hear the crowd in the background and I go, hello. And he goes, uh, this Bucky Dent. And I go, yeah, he goes, this is George Steinbrenner. I go, get out of here. And he goes, no, no, no. He says, I, I have a deal that'll bring you to the Yankees if you'll sign a contract. And at the time, Nick Bonacani was my agent, um, great linebacker. So I said, let me call him up. I called Nick and uh, I said, Nick, Nick, you know, make the deal. And so five minutes later, he called me back and I was, I was traded to New York. So you came over and you talked about it a little bit earlier. There was a lot of bold personalities and you said you were a little reserved. That had to be a difficult adjustment, right? Well, it was, you know, I mean, I'd have a chance to go to spring training and, you know, I, I knew some of these guys from, you know, playing against them and stuff like that, but I, I didn't really know them personally. And, and actually I was, you know, a lot nervous when I walked in, you know, the first day I walk in, you know, it was an off day and, they were getting ready to play Milwaukee and I walk in and over in Chicago, I was allowed to wear a little bit long hair and I didn't understand the Yankee rules. So I'm walking over to my locker. Here comes Billy Martin walking out and I go, I drop my bag and uh, I go, Billy, I'm you know, glad to be here. And he goes, we're glad to have you too, but get a haircut. And I said, okay, <laughs> I walked to my locker, you know, but yeah, I was a little reserved, but you know, they, they had such a great group of guys, you know, I mean, uh, Munson and, um, you know, uh, Gidry and Mickey Rivers, who I played against in high school, and he was ahead of me in college, you know, my homie was there. So um, it took, a, took me a little while to kind of feel at home, but those guys made it possible. The back-to-back -back world championships, that has to, I mean, of all the things, and you did a lot in the game, and you were a very accomplished player when the Yankees got you, and the Yankees needed a shortstop. They, they needed you to to become what they became. So you were a major piece in their success. There's no doubt that that's true. Um, but you go back and you look at, you look at the two years back to back championships. That's quite an accomplishment, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, you know, um, we won in 77, you know, 78, you know, we started out, we, we were hurt. We had a lot of guys hurt. You know, I was hurt. I think Mickey was hurt. Catfish had some arm problems and, we didn't start out very well, but, you know, like I said earlier, you know, the one thing that that team had is, a, is they, they didn't lack confidence and they didn't lack a desire to win and, and, and be the best. And, and that's what was um, so fascinating about those years that I, I played in New York 79. I thought we had a chance to win it again, but then unfortunately we lost Thurman and it, you know, kind of, um, even though we had to drive and the emotion to, to win it, we just couldn't pull it out, you know, in 79. But 80, we came back, and I thought 80, we had one of our best teams. We won 103 games under Dick Hauser, and he wound up getting fired. And then 81, we came back in a strike-shortened season and played through it, went on to, you know, to be in the World Series and got beat by the Dodgers. Um, and that was the last one for a long time. But, you know, those years that, that uh, I played on those teams, they were just – they were just really, really good teams. I mean, those guys knew how to play. You mentioned Catfish Hunter, who was a great was a great pitcher and a great person. Um, I was privileged to know him for a while, and I uh, uh, I don't know that I've ever met anyone finer. You know, as a gentleman and as a you know, as player, but as a gentleman. Um, 
you had him. You said somebody interesting. Reggie was obviously Reggie Jackson was an interesting personality of all time, no doubt about that. Um, and Thurman was Thurman was a very intense, very intense, terrific player, but very very intense. Um, I hate to, I don't want to jump around too much, but we're going to jump around a little bit. You, we, you mentioned that '79 was you know after winning the two championships back to back. How '79 just just wasn't the the year for the Yankees. A lot of injuries, a lot of things happened, and one of them was the passing of Thurman Munson. Where were you when you heard the news of the plane crash, and, and, and what was your immediate reaction to it? Well, I was in the Twin Towers having dinner. We had uh, played a four-game series in Chicago. We had an off day on Monday, and the last time I saw Thurman, he was walking to the parking lot um, with Bobby Mercer and his wife. You know, He was going to f- go home. Uh, on the off day. And so I was in the Twin Towers having dinner that night. And uh, I came down and uh, the valet guy says, aren't you Bucky? And I go, yeah. He goes, uh, boy, it's a shame what happened to Thurman Munson. I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, you got killed in a plane crash. And it just buckled my knees. I just sat down on top of the car and just started crying. You know, I mean, I was like in shock that, you know, I couldn't believe what he had just said. And I said, was there anybody in the plane with him? He goes, yeah, there was two other people. And I thought it was Bobby Mercer and his wife, but it wasn't, you know, but I mean, just to, you know, hear that those words that he had died was like really, really devastating. And it was, uh, it was really um, a, a, a tough time after that, you know, because Thurman was a, um, he was a family guy. He was a, a crusty player. You know, he was uh, the captain and he was tough. He played hurt, you know, uh, he, um, he, he was, uh, had a sarcastic sense of humor that, you know, he would walk up to you and say something to you. Like if you were slumping, you know, or having problems, he'd walk up to you and look at you and go, are you trying? And it would just like, you know, get under your skin and you start laughing, you know, and, you know, it would just like tick you off. But he was a he was a fun guy to play with and just a fierce competitor. How hard was it to take the field that next day against Baltimore? Well, it was hard. You know, I mean, it was a long day and uh, I'll never forget, you know, walking out there uh, or running onto the field and they left home plate empty, you know, and, you know, and then I, I uh, never forget that. And the catcher that night was Jerry Naren, um, who I wound up, you know, we we're good friends. I coached with him in, uh, in Cincinnati and we, we were, we've been longtime friends, but that night was, was just tough looking back there and, and not seeing Thurman and knowing that, you know, we had gone through a whole bunch of stuff and it was a very, very emotional game. And, uh, um, Bobby Mercer had a big night that night and, uh, uh, you know, that they were really close friends and, you know, you, you were just excited for Bobby because of, you know, what he had gone through too. Uh, Ken Singleton, who was uh, playing for the Orioles, uh, played mm-hmm. for the Orioles in that game and as a commentator and yes, and has been, uh, became a terrific broadcaster, was a terrific player and a really good guy. Uh, once said to me, remarking to me about that game, the Orioles were, had a really good team and they, I think they went wire to wire pretty much that year and they wound mm-hmm. up uh, getting, getting to the world series. But, I remember him saying to me, they, they, the Orioles were very intense and very competitive about a lot of things, and they never wanted to lose. And he said to me, because uh, I asked him about this, that game, he says, you know what, Flip, if we're going to lose one game, uh, that's a game I really didn't mind losing yeah. uh, to the Yankees. He said, uh, he talked about uh, that night, the emotion that they felt, and they from not, not from afar, but they were on the field, so they felt the emotion too, obviously. And Kenny had, had known Thurman, so he, you know, he he was, you know, the, the Orioles were very, you know, 
in a, in a mournful state, and it was a tough game for everyone. But the, the, the fact that the Yankees rallied the way they did, and Bobby, who was such a good friend of Bourbon, got that hit. Uh, it meant mm-hmm. so much to, I'm, I'm sure it meant a lot to Diana Munson and the family. So it was quite an, an emotional experience, as he put it and said to me. Uh, you know, he would, uh, of all the things in his career, and he had a quite a career, career borderline Hall of Famer for sure. Um, he said that was one of the most intense, incredible, uh, draining, emotional days that he's ever been in for the most time in baseball. Yeah, I I, t- I totally agree with that. You know, I mean, like I said, you know, Thurman was just uh, he was just a, a a great guy. You know, I mean, um, he didn't like the media much. You know, come off as a you know gruffy old guy, you know, and stuff like that. But he really uh, was a family guy, and he, he really wanted to. Uh, but you know, playing with him was just was just a lot of fun. I mean, uh, I really enjoyed it. Just an intense guy. I mean, I tell you, one of the home runs that I'll never forget was in we're playing Kansas City and. I think it was a 77th playoff game. Um, and he hit a home run off uh, Doug Bird that, you know, back then the left field was like 435, you know, and he hit a ball that kept I was sitting there and he hit it and I go, that ball's got a chance to go out of here. It was almost like it just kept going and going and going. It wound up landing in the bullpen um, and it, it put us ahead. But uh, that's one of the home runs that, that I'll never forget is the one he hit in against Kansas City in, in one of the playoff games. It just it just never stopped. It seemed like it kept, just kept going. You had an intense – the Yankees had an intense rivalry in those days with the Kansas City Royals. Oh, big one. You know, I, I think that they were – the games against them were just as intense as, as probably Boston. You know, those two teams didn't like each other at all. And in 77, I had Willie on my podcast earlier in the year – and we we're talking about that, you know, when he got taken out at second base by uh, Frank White, um, that that really lit a fire under uh, under, under us. You know, um, Al McRae, who got me a couple times in Chicago, um, didn't slide, kind of roll blocked him behind the bag and, and took him out and his feet went up in the air. And and, and after that, you, know, you could hear the guys come in the dugout and go, OK, we might lose this series, but we're going to kill some people, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they they started going after guys at second base, Pod Tech and Frank White, and I mean they were they were really on a mission, and you know not to lose to the Kansas City Royals. But you know, give Kansas City credit; they had some really good teams. They were built for that astroturf in Kansas City. They had some speed, they had some power, they had pretty good pitching, um, and not until '80 did they finally beat us um, in a playoffs. You know, they beat us three straight on the year that I told you won 103 mm-hmm. games and mm-hmm. I thought we had their best team, but they, they, they had some good clubs and, and they were, uh, they were intense rivalry too. They got to the world series in 80. Yeah. Yes, they did. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Lost but, to the Phillies, uh, I think. Yep. And I'll never forget the home run that, um, um, George Brett hit, hit off Gossage in, in, in that playoff game. <laughs> it's still going. That pull is still going. <laughs> Goose talks about it too. You know, he says, yeah, he says, that's one of the longest ones I threw, you know, but I'll never forget it went up in the third deck and Yankee stadium got, I mean, just dead quiet. I mean, I was like, Oh my God, did this really happen? You know, I mean, he hit it in the third deck. And so, uh, but uh, yeah, we, we had some, some really, really uh, emotional moments against him. We, I, we have to talk about the bronze suit. We just have to. Um, I mean, Sparky Lyle coined the phrase. He later wrote a book called The Bronx Zoo, and he chronicled the, the goings and the, the personalities of the various players and the, the the battling that went on between a lot of them 
and the uh, the personality overflow. Let's call it personality overflow that existed in the clubhouse because of the personalities that were part of that team. You know, we could we could we could do we could talk Billy, we could talk Sparky Lyle, we could talk Reggie Jackson, we could talk Lou Pinella. Uh, everybody was distinct. Greg Nettles. Everyone had a different personality. Everybody very distinct. Thurman Munson. Uh, it was quite it was quite a cast of characters, and you know, and the, they constantly were on the back page of, of the papers. And I, I'm sure to the delight of George Steinbrenner, who loved the, just loved every moment for purposes of marketing that that that, that team gave him. Oh, yeah. I mean, 77 was uh, an unbelievable year, you know, and uh, it it, uh, like you said, you know, it was a a group of personalities that, you know, really was amazing. I mean, the the electricity, you know, between everybody in the clubhouse, you know, you had the, the Sparky Lyles, who I think was one of the the, the guys that kept the team loose. He was just a funny guy, a, a, you know, a competitor. You had, uh, you know, Nettles was an intense guy, you know, sarcastic guy. Um, Pinella was probably one of the fiercest competitors that I ever played with. I mean, that guy was just hilarious. I mean, the things that he did and the stuff that he said to fans and he screamed at them and, and stuff like that. And then, you know, you go to the guys like Chris Chambliss and Willie Randolph and myself, we were kind of like the quiet guys, you know, the Roy Whites. Um, and then, you know, you had Mickey Rivers, uh, Catfish Hunter, like, like you said, I thought was one of the all time, just classiest guys I ever played with. I mean, he was just phenomenal. And and, you know, we just had a group of personalities. Reggie, you know, you never knew what Reggie was going to do. Um, and, you know, still don't. We still don't. No, yeah, Reggie's going to from over the moment. Yeah. <laughs> One day he'll say hello to you. Next day he'll walk right by you. <laughs> you know, so And ask your name. Yeah. Which he's done to me several times. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you know, so we had a, a, a unbelievable group of, of guys. You know, I mean, they were just, like I said, just fun guys intense guys you never knew what was going to happen when you walked in the clubhouse and I think that's what made it so much fun we talked a little bit about Billy we talked a little bit about George separately but together I want to talk about them together how crazy was that dynamic that they had and from a player standpoint did you find that distracting at all um I didn't you know like I said I I didn't find it distracting it's just that Billy wasn't my favorite manager there for some reason he didn't like me and and I didn't like him and, uh, um, you know, Reggie and I were kind of in the same boat, you know, we both came over, but he had spring training with him and I didn't, you know, and a lot of times we would be in the clubhouse together late in the game because Billy would take Reggie out for defense and he would pinch it for me late in the game. So we would be in the clubhouse together. So we, we became pretty good clubhouse friends, you know, like, you know, what the hell are we doing in here? You know? And, uh, but you know, it, it was, you, you know, Reggie was, uh, he, he was a big game player. I loved playing with him. Uh, you never knew what the heck he was going to do. Um, but uh, that's what, like I said, that's what made that team so much fun. You never knew what was going to happen one day from the next. So you didn't lose any sleep when Billy, quote unquote, retired in 78? None. None. No. <laughs> Matter of fact, I got a funny story in uh, 79, um, Old Timers Day, and which was one of our favorite days. Reggie and I are sitting right next to the tunnel that you come out. And um, so we're sitting there and all of a sudden um, they announce and the Yankees are going to announce that Billy Martin's going to be their manager for 1980. 
And Reggie and I looked at each other and we go, oh, my God, you know, he's coming back again. You know, and we, we just looked at each other like I wish I had a picture of that. Those two expressions, you know, but um, uh, uh, yeah, we were we were stunned that he was going to come back again. I had an interesting Billy Martin story. Um, when I worked at NBC Sports, which I did for, for four, uh, how long was I at NBC? I was at NBC a long, 17 years, um, 18 years, actually. And I've worked on the game of the week uh, for, for many of those years. So I got a chance to meet, obviously to meet a lot of players and personalities in the game. And, uh, you know, I had a sort of a tangential relationship with, with Billy. I didn't know him very well. I mean, just sort of say hello. And that, that's kind of it. And, you know, not much to it. And I'm on the field one day and he's surrounded by the gaggle of reporters and, and, and boom mics and things. And he's, you know, holding a supportive presser. And I, I see the presser. I keep walking. And in the middle of the press, he starts screaming my name. He says, flip, flip, flip. And I stopped and he said, yes. And he says to me, he goes, come here, come here. He says, so he says, he introduces me to the scrubber reporters. Many of them I had known, but I didn't know them all. And right in the middle of this thing, and he says, uh, do you know this guy? You know who his uncle is? And of course, no one knew. And he said, your uncle is Flip Phillips. Now, that's not going to mean a lot but to, to a lot of people, because a lot of people wouldn't know him. But uh, if you're into jazz music, He's a very was one of the great saxophone uh, players of all time, mm. and if you go to Wikipedia, Flip Phillips, you can find him there. Very interesting person, but but he was Billy and Bob Lemon. That's all they would talk about were Flip Phillips. So the every time they'd see me, they, I think they confused me with my uncle. So it, that's all they would talk about was jazz and music. So so I got to know Billy because of that in that 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 quirk of fate, and I got to actually know him pretty well. And I, you know, I, I liked him. I, I'm kind of attracted to like interesting, like crazy personalities. Like, mm -hmm. and, and he was a crazy personality. I mean, I had a lot of friends. I won't name go through the litany of them, but they're crazy. I mean, that, that's one of the things they all share. And they have this trait that they're kind of off center for whatever reason. And Billy was as off centered as they come. Right. I mean, and then Reggie was as off centered as, as they come. Right. And, you know, and Thurman was not off centered, but he was a very strong, very strong personality. So right. you, know, you put all these people, you put them together, and you know, the thing that's about the stir that's, that, 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 you know, you can only stir the drink badly. I'm the stir, you're the uh, I'm the stir that stirs the drink. You can only stir it badly. I mean, that caused so much chaos, so much chaos. And it's still to this day talked about in, in, in books and, and the press, and, and you can't go anywhere without talking, even, even, even the home run, Bucky, which is part of that lore. That was the payoff to learn the greatest comeback in, 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 in baseball history. That that was the greatest comeback, even more than the fifty-one Giants and Dodgers who tied and had the playoff and, and Thompson hits the home run. That even more so than that, and that that says to me that because he get as you said before, it was all about winning, and no matter how strong the personalities and everybody had a had their thing, which is true. But it's when it came time to play the play the game, you guys knew how to play the game and you won. Exactly, and you know you know the the, the big difference back then. Um, and I hate to say back then, but those, those teams, um, they made you accountable. You know, the manager really didn't have to say a lot. Billy really didn't say much to me. You know, I mean, the players would say something to you if you're not playing well, you know, or if you make a mistake or if you don't do something. They, they didn't have a problem walking up to you and saying, hey, what are you doing? You know, get your head out of your rear end. You know, they, they, they kind of policed themselves. And, and um, those teams you knew that if you didn't do something right, that somebody was going to say something to you. 
um, whether it would be Thurman, you know, Nettles would, might say something to you, but somebody was going to say something to you if you if you weren't playing a game the way you were supposed to play. And, um, you know, they were, like I said, they were just a, an awesome bunch of guys to, to play with. And even with their personalities, um, they were, they, they just kind of meshed well, you know, like you say, they were, they were like, um, uh, they're like eccentric, you know, I mean, you, you take Lou Pinella, fiery, fiery competitor on the field. I mean, he used to scream at the pitchers and, and just start laughing. You know, these left-handed pitchers, soft tossing guys would get him out and he would walk back to the dugout, you know, and somebody would say something to him and he would cuss at the fan, you know, and he'd get in there and he'd stand up on top of the dugout and just scream at the pitcher, throw me a strike. We get the, and then <laughs> then he'd go up the next at bat and the guy would throw him a fastball and he'd get a base hit and he'd come back and he goes, ah, eh, guy's a dummy, you know, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, he, but he was a fiery guy. I mean, you never knew what Lou was going to do. He was hysterical. Goose. You talked about goose. I mean, was there, Goose was one of the great relievers in, in the history of the game. And, uh, would, you know, I remember him getting the days of the more than one inning save. He'd come in three innings and, and you know, and, 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 and get the save. But he was such a character. He still is a character. Oh, he and still him is. And Sparky Lyle and that same bullpen. I mean, I can only imagine what that bullpen was like between, between the two of them. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I started with Goose. We started together in 1970 with the White Sox, you know, in, in Appleton, Wisconsin. So we came up together. So I've known Goose for a long time. And, uh, you know, back then, was, you know, he was a starter in his first year in, in um, Appleton. He, he struggled a little bit. And then the second year he went back there, he was 18 and one with like a one nine ERA. And, uh, you know, we had a, a great young nucleus of players back in the seventies with the White Sox. You know, it was me, Terry Forrester, Rich Gossage, Lamar Johnson, Jerry Harrison, Brian Downing, Goose and I and Terry Forrester lived together and we were, we couldn't rub two nickels together. We made like 500 bucks a month. And so we had, we slept on one mattress. We had like two sheets, one blanket and, you know, back in a ball 1970, you know, we didn't make a lot of money. So, but then you know, Terry Forster went to the big leagues in 71. Then Goose went to the big leagues in 72. And then I followed him in 73. And then along came Lamar Johnson and Jerry Harrison, George Order, and guys like that, you know. But uh, Goose has always been like just an intense guy. I mean, wow. I mean, he was like, you don't want to go to the mound and give him any advice, you know. Like, you know, somebody say, go to the mound and calm him down. You walk up on the mound, he go, what the hell are you doing here? Get out of here. I know what I'm doing, you know? So you, you didn't go to the mound, you know? I never went to the mound and said, I'm not going, you know, forget about it, you know? But he said, he's a guy that's uh, going to speak his mind. If you ask him a question, you don't want to hear the answer, then don't ask him because he's going to tell you what he's, what's on his mind. You managed the Yankees. Uh, that has, especially in that era, the year that you managed it for a year. And it was, um, Tell me about that experience and tell me about coming back to manage it. Tell me about what it was like to be playing a different role now and, and be to have direct dealings with George Steinbrenner. Well, it was, it was a goal of mine, you know, uh, actually Dick Hauser talked me in when I finished up in 84, he talked me in about going and managing. And back then you had to have an experience, you know, you had to ex have experience managing. And he says, go down in minor leagues, manage a few years, learn to manage, you know, the players, it's a different game. It's a fast game when you're managing. Learn to um, handle the press. So 
that's what I wanted to do. You know, I had run a baseball school for a, a lot of years and, but I was only teaching infielders and I knew the game, but uh, when I started managing the, the game, pitching was the thing that, that you really got to learn. And I had good pitching coaches. I had Bill Mamboquette my first year. I had Hoyt Wilhelm. I had Kenny Rowe in AAA, who I thought was one of the, the best. I had him for three years. He came over from Baltimore. He just got fired from the Orioles with um, Earl Weaver. And, you know, so I, I went back to learn, you know, to learn the game because um, – Playing shortstop, yeah, you think you know the game, but you really don't until you're in the dugout and you're managing people and you're managing situations and and stuff like that. And so when I took over in 89, um, I felt like I was ready. You know, I put my time in and I'd manage a lot of games. And um, I was just hoping that I would get enough time to, to manage in New York to hopefully turn it around. And, and that didn't happen. But I would never say anything negative about the experience. Um, I love managing for George. It was one of my goals to manage and to manage the New York Yankees was, uh, you know, a thrill for me. Um, it was just unfortunate that, you know, I didn't get it done. Like you said, the um, chance to stick around and turn it around wasn't there. And I think they, they fired you in Boston, the site of your greatest, mm -hmm. one of your greatest highlights. Mm -hmm. the, and, and the media took the Yankees to task a little bit for that. Did you hold any resentment for that where it happened? Um, I, um, you know what, I kind of knew the night before it was possible that I was going to get fired because we had played a game. Um, and I think Hawkins, Andy Hawkins started the game that night and he had never gotten out of the first inning in Boston. And the same thing happened. He didn't get out of the first inning. They scored. Well, we wound up coming back and Randy Velarde hit a three-run homer to tie the game late. And then we got beat on a squeeze, on a squeeze bunt. And so we were short of pitchers because Andy didn't get out of the first inning. So I think I used Jimmy Jones and, and a couple other guys to get through the game. And so that night I called George Bradley and I said, George, I said, we need, we need another pitcher in here tomorrow because um, I forgot who was pitching. Um, uh, it was a left-hander. And I said, if he doesn't get out of the first inning in Boston today, we're going to be in trouble. We don't have enough pitching. Back then, we only had 11 pitchers on the staff because, you know, we had, um, I think, only 24 players. That was a year that the major league cut back to 24 players. So George Bradley goes, hmm, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. He says, um, um, who are you going to send out? And I said, well, I'd send out Blowers. And I played Velarde at third. And do we, you know, get through the series with the, with, you know, with the pitcher? And he goes, and I go, what's going on? He goes, well, I don't think George will let you send Blowers out. And, uh, and so I hung up the phone and I'm sitting there and uh, I go, geez, I'm going to get fired tomorrow. And sure enough, because, you know, um, they send me a note in the morning saying, you know, slid a note under the door, be in your room by 12 o'clock. George wants to talk to you. So I went and got Joe Sparks and uh, one of my coaches. I said, let's go have some breakfast. I said, Joe, I think I'm going to get fired today. And he goes, really? I go, yeah, I, I think so. And I kind of had a feeling of that, you know. So I got back to the room and George called me and he told me that he was going to make the change. And, you know, actually, you know, I was a little bitter because uh, uh, I told him, you know, when I first took the job that it was going to take a while. This, this team, you weren't going to turn it around real quick. And uh and, uh, you know, but yeah, I was, I was a little bitter then. I don't think I spoke to Mr. Steinbrenner. I left and went to coach with the Cardinals and Joe Torrey, 91. And I didn't come back to the Yankee organization until 
2003 when I went back to manage AAA. So um, I don't think I had talked to him for, for all those years. I want to go back to um, your playing days a little bit because we we talked a ton about your teammates. Uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about you specifically, uh, particularly the, your, your postseason career. Uh, World Series MVP. I think you batted in the World Series 349 or 350. Uh, you couple that with that big home run in Boston. What is it about the spotlight that makes you play even better? Well, I, I think, you know, when you're when you play in big games like that, you know, um, you've heard the athletes, you know, they get in a zone. And, and I think when you're playing in big moments and big games like that, you know, you just kind of start to focus in a little bit more and you, you start to, you know, just, you know, cherish the moment. I mean, I, I, I think. You, you draw back on all the games that you played in, in, in your backyard when you're saying, you know, I'm Mickey Mantle, I'm going to be in a bases loaded situation, I'm going to hit a home run. And then, you know, you play those things out. And then over the course of your career in Little League and, and you know, Pony League and in high school and in college and in minor leagues, you're always preparing yourself for those kind of moments so that when you're in them, um, everything kind of slows down for you. So um, it was just, you know, you always want to win. You never want to lose. And I think the drive of winning just makes you, you know, work that hard, much harder and, and focus that much harder. Certainly worked for you. Oh, yeah. I just looked it up, 349 in a World Series MVP over the course of two World Series. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I just love uh, playing in the, in the World Series. Those were always you know, things that, uh, you know, that you play for their goals, their, their moments that you, you'll never forget. And, uh, you know, you just cherish them. So, uh, yeah, you, you focus in a little bit harder and, uh, and you cherish those moments. If you could tell one story, Bucky, that, uh, you would want our listeners to know that, the, that they don't know. There's a lot of things people know about you, a lot of things they don't know about you, but one thing that you would like them to know that they don't know, what would that be? I don't know. I mean, you know, that um, uh, I, I don't know. I just had a, a quiet, severe, serious, competitive attitude. You know, I mean, I was I was quiet, but, you know, I uh, I had a, a fire not to lose uh, like a bunch of those guys that I played with. You know, it was uh, you, you just you wanted to win. And uh, like I said earlier, you know, I got a chance to do a lot of a lot of things that that that, that I dreamed about playing for the Yankees, playing a world championships, playing on all-star games, meeting people, you know, your, your childhood, you know, idol, Mickey Mantle, playing in big games, you know, winning the most valuable player, managing the Yankees. I mean, um, all those things, uh, you know, uh, you dream of, uh, I got a chance to do it. Well, you, none of you did, but you excelled and, uh, you've left a very nice mark on the game and, uh, you know, your legacy as a player is, was, is obviously, a terrific one. And uh, even more so you as a person, I mean, I've gotten to know you through the years somewhat, you know, mostly through, we have some, some mutual friends and uh, the more time I spent around you, the more comfortable I became and the more I liked you because uh, you know, you were, you're, you're a genuine human being. I mean, you, you've got a good soul and a good heart and that, that just screams out. And anytime you're around anybody say, but he is a kind human being. He's a very nice human being. That's the first thing anybody will ever say. He's a good guy. And you know, of all the things you could say about somebody, that's, that's a nice thing to, to say it's a nice thing to and i'm, I'm happy that you got married to that nice lady <laughs> me too <laughs> see all the time it speaks right and andrew levy and, I, and i'd say she's a very nice lady 
and I'm glad you guys got married. So I think that's great. Well, thank you. And I, and I appreciate all your, your, your compliments, you know, I mean, I, I think that's, that's something that, you know, every athlete, you want to leave a mark in the game, but you also want to do it in a, in a, in a class way where people respect you for, for the way you play the game. And for the person you are. So, so for all that, so thank you for spending time with us today. And, um, you know, it was fun. It really was fun to take that stroll and to, you know, relive the, some of those great moments. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I sure appreciate it. All right. Well, well, we'll see you down the road. Thank you so much, Bucky. You too. Have a great thanks, one. Thanks, Bucky. All right. Bye-bye. Well, Flip, aside from you uh, trying to get me in trouble for saying Bucky Dent's nickname, uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I did too. He's a good guy. Uh, he really is. Uh, he's a class act. Always was, and uh, you no know, people. He was a matinee idol. The Yankees got him uh, to trade for the White Sox. He was a matinee idol. What do you mean? Well, matinee idol that uh, like all the young girls would love, love him. You know, he was good looking. You know, he was a you know he was a sex symbol. Well, he is a good looking man. Well, I mean, I, I'm not going to get down to his you know, physical characteristics and how good looking he is or not. I'm just saying that he's just he's a sex symbol to who he was back in the day. He's better hair than me. Well, who doesn't? I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk baseball, Flip. Okay, sure. Well, let's look ahead to the Jays. The Yankees uh, have a series with the Jays coming up. Uh, game one, I think it's Montgomery, right? Montgomery versus Hunjin Ryu. Mm-hmm. Tell Ryu me what you expect player. from. Uh, yeah, Ryu was great. He's their yeah. best pitcher. Yeah. Um, by far. Well, that's the problem with the Jays, by far. It's yeah. Ryu and then everyone else. Uh, but this is a good team. This team is in front of the Yankees in the standings. What do you expect to see? They have they have a really good offensive team. They uh, they're about f- they have five solid position players, maybe six. That's really strong when you can roll out the, the arsenal that they that, that they roll out every day. And you know when you've got uh, especially when you've got you know Vlad Guerrero Jr. having the year that he's having. I mean he's probably the MVP of the American League. And uh, I said probably he would be rise of this line. I mean, he's just, he's just, just slugging is off the charts. And he's become a pretty good defensive first baseman, not bad at all, you know, considering that they just had to make that transition. You know, they put him, um, you know, they um, want to open up third base. So they, they moved him over to first, figuring hopefully he could make the transition, and he has. So he's, he's, and he's become a pretty good defender. So he's a two-way player for them, and he's young. And he's got charisma, and he's going to be a drawing card. He already is a drawing card in the game. So the the the, uh, the Jays have, have you know hit, hit the uh, hit a grand slam with him. They did hit a grand slam with him. Somebody else who they haven't even seen. I know you're talking about the the offense. Is wait till George Springer comes back. This yeah, team, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, this is without Springer. They've done this, which is remarkable. They, they hit eight home runs against the Sox on Sunday. Eight. Yeah, they, they pretty much sent the Red Sox to the dry cleaners. <laughs> they did. They really so, did. So, if the Yankees can beat Ryu, then they have Cole, and you would assume that they could do Cole versus Stripling. You think they could win that game. They can take two out of three here. No doubt. No question they could. I mean, you know, listen, the, the Yankees need to sort of – we talked about this a little earlier. They need to start to go on a run. And, uh, and they're going to have to start beating teams that are ahead of them. Because, uh, the, the, you know, when you have three teams ahead of you in the standings, you know, it, it's the problem is even if you go on a run, somebody, one of those three teams is going to play well. 
you know, they're not all going to, you know, sort of capitulate and, and, and not play well, uh, the three teams that are ahead of you. So, uh, you know, and that's why it's hard to pick up consistent ground. You'll pick up ground on a team. You might pick up on ground on two teams, but you will pick up on ground on three. You know, it's going to be hard to do. And, and that's why you can't waste that run. You got you just got to, you know, it's a cliche to say you got to take games one at a time. Yankees have to play these one at a time. They can't worry about an overall scenario. They have to, they just have to start playing them one at a time. And if they start, you know, stringing them together because they need to do that to, to, you know, to get the, uh, the, uh, uh, the numbers on their side so they can, they can make a real run at this thing. You're right. They have to make a run. What, what is the next, I guess, uh, swatch of games we should look at? Is it 20, 25 games? Um, let's call it 25. If it is 25 games, what do the Yankees have to do? 15 and 10? In the next 25, for them to sort of, uh, you know, sort of make sure they're back in this thing, 15 and 10 would be very helpful. Uh, well, let's put it this way. They can't afford to go 10 and 15 because they're already eight and a half out and they got three teams in front of them. Now, again, the Yankees have time. The Yankees could whittle away. You know, you still have a, you know, a, a large part of the season still left. And the Yankees, the Yankees could whittle away and win this thing. It's possible. So I don't know if they, there's nobody has to hit any panic buttons is my point. And yet it seems like everybody is hitting some kind of panic button and they shouldn't because yeah, the red flags are there, no doubt. And the Yankees have not played well. Let me make that clear, be clear about that. If I haven't already been clear, let me, let me be less than succinct here. Uh, they have not played well. And, but they've got, but they still have, that being said, they could still they could still pull this out. It isn't isn't just winning a division. I, although I don't know how the wild cards are going to come out of here, I don't know. That's going to be hard to say who's going to come out of here. So if anybody, so the Yankees' best bet is obviously win the division. Go go for the division. Can they do it? Yeah, they could do it. They could still do it. Uh, you know, the bats are coming around. You know, and now we have a situation where you know the pitchers are going to be monitored more carefully going forward, and that will weigh into the the you know the uh, the advantage that will weigh it to to the offensive side of the game to the batters so that'll give the Yankees a chance to start maybe hitting where they hadn't been hitting before but let's clearly clearly they have to start hitting and clearly they have to start fix their pitching because their pitching has started to go south on them a little bit and they've got to bring their pitching back to respectability so that that's formidable okay along with their other challenges which is running the bases which they don't do play defense which they really don't do they got to play better defense. They got to run the bases well. That's a mandate. They have to pick up offensive slack. They got to score some runs. They just have to. And defensively, you know, pitching wise, and not only just the defense, it's short, but pitching wise, and center field, and up the middle, and everywhere. They need wow, help you've defensively. Named them all. Well, that's pretty much their problem, though, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty much everything. So there, therein lies the real problem. Is their problem is 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 multifaceted. It isn't one dimensional. people say, well, they're not hitting. Well, they're not hitting. They're not really pitching. They don't run the bases well. They don't manufacture runs, and they don't play defense. And they're not strong up the middle. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, the play is great. Okay, so okay, so I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be flippant here. I'm not. And the Yankees could still straighten this out. I mean, I believe that they still could, but it's going to take a Herculean effort. Everybody's got to stay focused, really get focused to get this done. No, no more, no more messing around. They can't afford to fall further back. They just can't. They want to win this thing, then they got to get real serious about it, and it starts like right now, today. I'm bullish on this team. and Call me a homer, but I am bullish on this team, and I'll tell you why. It's no surprise that this Yankees team is built on offense. And starting today, as we record this, umpires are cracking down on spider tack and the sticky situation. And that means 
the Yankees offense is going to have every opportunity to turn itself around. You're absolutely right, Kevin. I, I expect the, the the bats, you know, will come around. I, I expect that, uh, you know, the the edict about the cracking down on the spider tack, which is the the substance that the, a lot of the pitchers been using to get a better grip on the ball, uh, you know, and, and give them better spin rate, which gives them more movement on the pitches. You know, baseball is going to outlaw that and. Uh, you know, make it a sort of a, a 10 day suspension if you get caught with it. So uh, it's not in our best interest to be caught with it or to use it. So, and, but what it'll really do is it'll give the, the uh, you know, it'll jumpstart the offenses, which have really been laggards because of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, no, no one is hit because the offenses haven't been there. The offenses haven't been there because the pitching has been so dominant. Pitching's been dominant because of the grip situation with the spider attack, and that's part of it. So, you know, by 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 outlawing it, they'll it'll it'll really help boost the the offenses, which you know the, the game really really needs some runs scored because watching a baseball game now is basically watching people either strike out or into double plays, and it's kind of it. It's what you're watching. So, you know, I think fans want to expect more, want to see more. So, this will give them a real reason to uh, just hopefully see it. The pitchers are essentially throwing 95 mile per hour wiffle balls, which I ex- nobody's going to hit that. But speaking of hot bats, I want to get your take on uh, Miguel Andujar, who's getting more playing time lately. Let me give you some of his numbers, and then I'll get your take. Last 12 games, he's batting 311, slugging 644, OPS 978. He's got five home runs. He's been great. Um, no one ever said that Miguel Andujar couldn't hit. Nobody. I mean, what we question is, was, I mean, he's, he questioned is, is a defense, you know, he's, whether it's a third base or particularly in the outfield, which he's not, that's not where he should be. But having said that, look, the Yankees had to, had to make some concessions. They made some, some defensive concessions because they were really concerned about scoring runs. They needed to score runs, you know, so uh, I, I get why they did what they did. I don't know that I agree with it, but I do understand that. You know, you got to score runs, and it's got to come from someplace. And he's a natural hitter. He just is a natural hitter. He's got great bat speed. You know, he's got terrific eyesight. He picks the ball up well. He reads it well. He's a really good hitter. And uh, and he's got, you know, he got the capability to hit the ball pretty much everywhere. He doesn't pull everything, which makes him a good hitter. When you don't pull everything, you know, you get much more of the field to work with. And so he's a strong hitter, and he really has come through for the Yankees. It took him a while. He was rusty and played a long time. And uh, so you have to play a little bit and get rid of the rust. But, but listen, that's come. And that's why you have to be patient. And that's why I say the Yankees are starting to hit a little bit. Like I said, I still can't believe Torres' numbers are not further along, although he started to hit a little bit more and Frazier's gotten a little bit better. And, you know, Gardner had a little bit of life more in his bat, a little bit more, starting to see that. And Jimmy Judge, when he's on the field, is, is always, always dangerous. It can always hit. So the, and Sanchez has been hitting more better for the Yankees of late. You know, it's like, is it enough? We'll see. Can he stay consistent? Well, we'll see. But right now, at least he's showing some signs of life. And if you're a Yankee fan, you take solace in that. I expect big things out of Sanchez. I want to go back to Andujar a little bit. Ironically, after your review of his defense last week, do you remember that? You're dead. Yes, I said he, he was not a good outfielder. <laughs> Something like that. I, I may have been a little bit more, uh, uh, that's what I'm looking for, a little more strident in my critique. A little bit. Play. Yeah, I said. A the, little bit. Yes, I said. Uh, like the outfield, like it was a minefield. That's that's <laughs> that's what it was. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, well, but the Yankees, the Yankees appear to be favoring him in the outfield defensively more than Frazier, and we saw that against the Twins when Boone put Gardner in as a defensive replacement for Frazier and not Andujar. 
Yes, he, he did. And, 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 you know, and, it, you know, and again, you know, Andahar is really coming on. And Frazier has just been so inconsistent, you know, at the plate. Something that no one really, everyone thought he would hit. They just thought his defense would be somewhat problematic. Or, you know, the reality is if you, when you watch him play defense every day, he, he realizes, you know, even though he makes some spectacular plays, they're really a byproduct of probably misreading the ball more than they are making great reads and catching the ball. But, Look, it it does look. You got to get the job done. You got to get it done. Done when when you're playing in the field. You got to get it done on both sides of the ball. You got to hit the ball and you got to catch the ball. It's really that simple. And when you don't do one or the other, it's it becomes a glaring uh, problem. And right now, the Yankees have some glaring pop problems because their position players are a either not hitting the ball well at all, or they're not catching the ball to any degree at all. So if you're not hitting the ball and you're not catching the ball, I put it to you: What exactly are you doing with the ball? <laughs> Point taken. Everyone, longtime listeners know I'm a huge Clint Frazier fan. So I'm circling this date, June 15th. I think between him and Gary Sanchez, June 15th on, electric bats. They're going to crush the ball. That's my prediction. Uh, Once you you get everybody caught up to speed on some of your other predictions. (laughs) I said one bad prediction. You're all over me. Okay. I'm not. Super Bowl three, the Jets and the Colts. You picked Colts. the Colts to win. Like, four, four <laughs> well, so did everybody else. It's not me. I picked the Jets. Yeah. And I didn't even give the points. I was in high school. I remember betting my, my good friend Vito DeSantis at the time. I said to him, the Jets are going to win that game. Because I was a big Jet fan. I still am. Uh, and uh, except, you know, 50 years of frustration has proven me, you know, you know it's, it's, it's John flipping Filippelli. Effing Filippelli. Like, yeah, flipping. Why can I bet on it? How can I support the Jets? But I do. Anyway, not to digress, but I did. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, the, the, the Yankees have got – look, you got, they, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. And, and then, but if they don't do it and the Yankees continue to sort of struggle and not find their way, like in the next, 20, say the next 25 games is what we just talked about, right? We talked a little bit about that 25 games, about being important, right? If they don't start to put it together, then they're going to have to make a lot of decisions as to what do you do with the rest of the season. Well, let me put you on the spot. If they yeah. don't put things together, yeah, they don't start winning. You're Hal Steinbrenner. Yeah, what do you do? I'm Hal Steinbrenner. What do I do? You're in charge. Um, if the next twenty-five games, I don't see some progress some light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, I might, I might be a seller. Whoa. I might look to sell. Like, you know, I don't mean sell the team. I'm not about no, I know. Yeah. yeah. It'd be crazy to sell this team. This is, they got, no, no, it's a great investment. Don't have, don't sell the team. I mean, no, it's not selling the team. Uh, but I mean, I, when I would say they'd be sellers, the players, they would look for, get value. They'd probably look to swing a few trades and, and get uh, some value back and hasten them, you know, getting them stronger for, uh, put them in a stronger position for the for next season and seasons to come. Uh, they did that a couple of years ago. You know, they, they made some moves. Uh, uh, Miller, uh, the relief pitcher, Miller, was yeah. so terrific. You know, uh, Chapman, right? Yeah, got Glaber Torres, right. Clint Frazier. Yeah, right. good haul for the Yankees. Yeah, I mean they got some players back, and uh, they wound up getting wound up getting Chapman back too. So, you know, so listen. Sometimes uh, it was a, they they got something in a situation where they had to decide what they were going to be. That's a tough decision. That's a really tough decision for the Yankees because you're asking them. It is not in their nature to wave any white flags. 
That's not what the Yankees do. That's never been their history, and it's not their history now. That's not how Steinbrenner's nature either. He doesn't like wave white flags. He doesn't. That's not who he is. But you know, at some at some point though, if you let's get through the next twenty five games, and then we can have a pragmatic conversation about what we do or not do for the rest of the season. But I think you got to get through the next twenty five games, and then you'll have a much clearer picture as to where you stand. Because if, if they haven't started to make a move, or they find themselves 10, 12 games out. You know, after the next 25 games, then I think they have to be taking a different approach and a different outlook than the one that they, they're currently faced with. 25 games, looking at the schedule. So, how about that gets us to about the All Star break? Yeah. So, how about we have the same exact conversation at the All Star break? Okay. Until then, you want to go to the mailbag? Yeah, let's set some questions. Before we do, we've been doing this for a couple of years now. Yeah. I don't know why it's just hit me right now. We need like a jingle, like a mailbag jingle, two to three seconds. And I know who could do that. Who? Well, I shouldn't say this because you have, I'm looking at like four or five guitars behind you. But AJ Herman's a mususician. Is AJ, AJ, our producer. AJ, do you think you could do two to three seconds, like a mailbag? I think that would be an awesome challenge. I will definitely take you up on that. Absolutely. Like, I don't want like, as Flip walks to his guitars, I don't want like a hard guitar riff. I want like something catchy, like a jingle. Like a little melodic kind of transitional phrase. I got it. Yeah. 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 All right. AJ's on the job. It's on my to-do list now. Hum something, AJ. What what do you have in mind? Hum something? Hum something, AJ. Well, this is really on the spot. I hadn't thought about it until literally 10 seconds (laughs) ago, but I could for sure come up with something. Doesn't that define greatness is to do something? So Flip is uh, stepped away from the mic so that he can start playing his guitar, everyone. Let's hear it, Flip. Oh, I know that one. Uh, Desert, horse, no name. The whole bit. Yeah, there we go. Don't be impressed. But anyway, I just felt like doing that. So that's like the horse with no name. Now, America, the recording group, please don't sue us. (laughs) I don't think they'll sue us. I don't think they'll recognize it. No offense. Uh, probably not. There you go. Uh, okay, so uh, that's a great, great idea. I like that. Let's get a jingle. Okay. AJ will work on that. Okay. Sorry for giving you homework, AJ. My pleasure. And I hear your dog going in the background. That's podcasting in the pandemic. Dogs in the background. All right. The mailbag. Clint from Pennsylvania. As we approach the trade deadline, three names making the rounds on Twitter for the Yankees are... Adam Frazier, Max Scherzer, and Cattell Marte. You can only pick one. Who is it? Frazier, Scherzer, Marte. Um, wow. I'm torn between two because the Yankees have, will have glaring need for a starting pitcher, screen starting pitcher. They also have glaring need right now for the center field position. You know, Marte would would admirably fill center field for the for a little bit more than um, you know than than the season. It's like I think he's got another two years after that. So talk about the next two and a half years if Yankees can make that deal, get him. That would be they, they could fill that breach for a while. Uh, although you know, I don't know when Hicks is due back, and you know, given the, this medical situation as well. So who knows what happens there? I don't know. So, but Marte certainly would fill that breach very very nicely. But Scherzer gives you. I mean, he's uh, he, he's is. He, He's really pitching as well as he's 
pitched ever pitched his record doesn't indicate it but he's playing the team is he's with is not playing well but but he's a really he's as good as they get here's a the idea of adding that arm is like really great but the but it only would be right now unless the Yankees could make a long-term deal he's a free agent after the season so if you're looking at immediate help Shears helps but again you have to see where the Yankees are when the deadline comes around to see you know is even getting it for half a year if they're if they're if they're too far out then but they'll have to give up something because everybody's going to want him. You know, they'll have to give up a lot to get him. And is it worth giving up a lot to get him if you're not going to have him for a very long length of time? And it would it be enough for you to claw back into the race, depending on how far out you are. So the, I think the Yankees would be better suited to answer that question as you get close to the deadline, as opposed to too far out now to sort of say, where do you go? But Shearza certainly is, if you're close, relatively close, you may go Shearza. But I'll tell you what, Marte helps you longer term and really fills the need as well. So I would go one of the two. Sticking with the spirit, no, it makes total sense. Sticking with the spirit of Clint's question, saying you could only pick one, I would pick Scherzer, like you. However, I just don't. It's the least realistic of the three, in my opinion. I just don't see the Nationals, like you said before, waving the white flag. That's not like them. We saw them just a few years ago get off to an awful start and stick with it, and then win the World Series. They're not sellers traditionally. No, but you, but you know what? They won their World Series. You know, when you, it's sort of like the Cubs winning. Finally, had, the Cubs had to win one year. They just had to. When they won in '16, it took a lot of the pressure off. The problem with the Cubs became one of, you know, because they had such a good team. People thought that they could, you know, they'd be able to replicate that success, you know, a couple of times and get multiples out of it. And right now, here we are in '21, so it's five years after the fact. And you know what? They haven't gotten any more. They just got the one. But at least they got the one, and that was important to them. But the truth of the matter is that it's hard to. You know, it's hard to, you know, what are you looking to? I mean, I've always said if an organization, you know, could win a championship every five or six years, that, that kind of sets you up for the, you, it gives you, a, you know, it's breathing space. It, there's not immediate pressure to win if you've won in the last four or five, six years. But if it's longer than that, it becomes, the pressure becomes exponentially, becomes exponential depending on how many, the, the, the time, how many more years. Now, the Yankees haven't won a World Series in 11 years. It's it, the fan base really wants a World Series. The, the organization needs a World Series. We need a World Series, and you know if it's not this year, hopefully it's next. But do, you know, but you know you get windows for these things, and you know, and you've got to be cognizant of those windows, and because nothing is guaranteed, and especially player length and health, and every things can just change from year to year. A player who's was a was an MVP caliber player one year, and that maybe the next year is not gets hurt, isn't the same player anymore. Who knows? There's so many variables to this thing. There's no there's 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 no there's no simple uh, math to this equation. There just isn't. And but the reality is that if you can win every couple of years, you serve your fan base very well. And the, and Washington, you know, finally won after all those years. And then and it puts them. So the need for them to win is not as 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 much as it was the, when they won the, the World Series a couple of years ago. Should we remind people to rate, review, and subscribe? Yes, those of those of which we know will actually take the time to do it. Because those of you who do it, we're very appreciative of it. Because I must tell you, some people, we said this before, I mean, nice people are to us. We write such wonderful things. Uh, it's appreciated very much. But please rate, review, and subscribe because that's a, that's a metric we need uh, to keep, you know, keep bringing you these things. So, uh, and the people who, uh, who carry us are very, uh, very swayed by uh, things that you write. So, uh, and you write nice things. So thank you very much. And that's uh, been a lot of the key to our, uh, whatever success we've had. We've had some success. So. That's due to you people, so thank you all. It really is the best way to help us. And as you were speaking, Flip, I 
I logged on to iTunes. We do have a new one here that we should read. Um, it's titled Love This Podcast by Podcast Lover Emmy. Okay. Flip and Kevin know their stuff. Inform and entertain me. Can't wait for the next episode. Thank you, Podcast Lover Emmy. Five stars were rated, Flip. It's nice. It's very nice to say that. Five stars. If we were a movie, like we would be, we'd be like a box office hit. We'd be two thumbs up. For oh, we'd sure. be critical. We'd be critical. At five stars, you get critical acclaim. Doesn't mean you're a hit. Like people, because people go see movies that aren't necessarily good, right? They 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 ignore some great movies, or vice versa. They do. They do. They do. Great movies. They ignore poor ones. But who knows? I think I said. I said it's a lot there. What did I say? Goodfellas was your favorite movie last week. Did I nail it? Was that your favorite movie? No. Godfather, Godfather. That's what I said. Yeah, that's like, that's, I think that's like everybody's favorite one of them. I, I, the big question with The Godfather is, is it one or two? Because do you like one better than two or two better than one? They're both great movies, but they're different movies. I don't know. You come to see me on the day of my daughter's wedding. <laughs> I mean, will somebody find Michael? Where's Michael? I'm Michael's running family business now. He's in charge. Go find Michael. On this day, June 15th, that's 1923. It, I mean, that's, my best. that's Marlon Brando. <laughs> that's like not an easy impression. It's the only impression I do. It's Let's actually see. spot on. People are going to think that we just dubbed him in. That we got Marlon Brando. Luca, fine, Luca Marazzi. I saw you don't understand. You just don't understand. It's, it's Mokuri, Tataya, Strachi. I mean, they just, they have to go. You understand? They just, they have, they have to leave. We, we. We can't do business the same way anymore. So someone's going to call and get us for a trademark infringement, either for playing Godfather or we're promoting it. <laughs> you can find it on iTunes. Because it, it sounds like it, we're just playing straight from the movie. That's how good you are. <laughs> we're, just, that's, we're having fun. That's all we're doing. <laughs> I'm kidding. You need to have fun. If, if you don't kidding. have fun in life, what do you have? Tell me. Uh, not what, fun. Tell me, what do you do for fun, Kevin? Tell me. What do you do for fun? Tell our what you do. Well, I watch baseball for fun. Okay. That's pretty much it. That's it. When I'm not watching it, uh, and yes, I'm watching my son play. Well, the son thing is different. That's, that's your son, and you want to enjoy it every minute with your son. That's uh, your children. That's the best thing, gift you can have is the gift that your children give you, and hopefully you give it back to them. That's a great thing. So I admire that uh, your father. Does. By the way, it's Happy Father's Day, everybody. Oh, when's that? Is that this Sunday? Yes. Oh, I better get a good gift. I tell you. I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> no, you'll get a good gift. I mean, especially when you when you keep reminding them that it's Father's Day. So you know it's Father's Day. I completely forgot. Well, see, that's why you got to remind them. I'm very subtle about this. So what guys are getting me for Father's Day? So <laughs> Pierce and Johnny Ed, my two boys. Do you, you tell them what to get? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I say, well, this, Dad, you have, you have, what do you really need? I go, well... And I go through a litany of things, like 50 different things I think I need. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a great day. So, you know, uh, you can always send me flowers. I'll send them. Yeah. <laughs> me? They're in the mail. You never send me flowers. I never get any flowers from you. I never send you flowers. No. no, never did. I take care of you. When I come visit, I usually bring a bagel. We don't tell your wife. Oh, no, you can't tell my wife. Don't bring no. any bagels. And she's <laughs> <gets> upset. I'm <laughs> rather big and... She doesn't like that, so she's uh, complaining. Don't, don't stop eating those bagels. Would you get that bagel? See, Kevin Sullivan brought it over. 
<laughs> Let me tell you what happened June 15th, 1923. Or do you want to guess in Yankees history? Uh, You're never going to get it. No, but Lou Gehrig made his Major League debut. Oh, okay. On this day, as we record, 1923. Okay. That was the Here's one. stadium open, right? Correct. The house that Ruth built. Correct. June 17th. So this is just two days from now, 1978. Ron Gidry strikes out 18 batters oh, yeah, in a four-hit, four-nothing shutout of the Angels. So he's set apartment I, in Brooklyn watching the game. I was literally just going to ask you where you were. That's where I, I was swear. watching the game. And uh, I was in a Frank Messer and Phil Rizzuto do the game on WPIX in New York. And Gidry was just overpowering. And the Angels were good. You know, the Angels had the, you know, Don Baylor and, you know, Bobby Gritch, you know, and uh, they, they had some firepower on that team. It's good players. And uh, they they just couldn't touch. They could not touch Gator. Could not. It, that that slider was unhittable. That fastball was great movement. Uh, it was it was great to watch. And you knew early on you were going to get see. You were seeing something very special. Sometimes those things give you a cue. Like you could pick up early on when you see something. Remember we talked about Kluber's no hitter. At, you could tell early on that he had a chance for something special because he was just so dominant. Gator was like that. Is it true that that's where the the clapping started for two strikes. Everyone as far starts- as I know, I think that I think that would be accurate. Yeah, I mean that's the first time that I I remember that I was ever seeing it or hearing it. I'm looking up his numbers now. These are amazing. In '78, he was 25 and three. And the CRA was at 178, 175, yeah. 174. Yeah, and he was not the MVP. He won the Cy Young that year. Jim Rice was the MVP. Yeah, he was second in MVP. Yeah. Wow. Let me see where he was. Oh, yeah. So Jim Rice, had, yeah, Jim Rice had uh, 90% of the vote. Gidry had 74. Let me go to, let me go to Rice. Uh, batted 315, 46 home runs, 139 RBI. Wow. 139 runs batted. Wow. It's, I mean, they both had great years, in, in all fairness. That's why you have a, an MVP and a Cy Young. You know, the, the MVP should have been Rice, and the Cy Young Award winner should have been Gator. Gator was the best pitcher, and, uh, and, and the Rice was the best player. I'm glad you brought that up. That's one of the arguments I always have. Should mm-hmm. pitchers be able to win the MVP? Uh, they have, and, and the times that they've won it, there's, the, the, the MVP race was probably very, very close. That's why the, the, the pitcher, like, if you get a really dominant like when Denny McLean, you know, won his 30 games, you know, I mean, who was, who was more valuable than Denny McLean? No matter, you know, and the, you know, the Tigers went to the world series that year. So they must have had several candidates, but all I'm saying is to be, to have had a more stark year, a better year. You play like that. You deserve both awards. Uh, the people are too provincial about that stuff, but the reality is, but it is why you have an MVP and you have a Slayer award. So you don't run into issues like that. And both guys got their deserved awards, you know, it bothers me. I think the spirit of the awards were best pitcher and best position player. Yeah, they are. I agree. They are the spirit of the award. And, yeah. And the, you, I think you have to rename MVP because like it could be somebody. It could be somebody from the Mariners who's most valuable to their team. Like, How about player of the year? How about player of the year? That's it. Done. Player of the year. If you were commissioner for a day, you would yeah. change the award. Okay. Yes, I would. If I was the Yankee oh. owner for a day, I would do certain things. If I was the commissioner for a day, I would do certain things. Yes. Okay, good. If you, if you arrange were... me to get those jobs, I'll, I'll, I'll enact my legislation. <laughs> I promise. 
if you were host of a curtain call podcast, would you land the plane? Oh well, yes. I would ask Ashley Fugazi's uh, permission uh, before I land the plane. But certainly, once granted permission, you know, I would say waste no time and let's no circling. Let's just take a direct approach and land this. So, in the words of Ashley Fugazi, it's time to land the plane. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>